is it really already three weeks ago or only three weeks ago that we had another Trina community broadcast? It is. And this time <laughs> it is episode 39 and Brian and myself are joined by two awesome Trino users, Edward and Steve. Thank you for joining us here from Raft. Um, it's going to be super interesting to see how you use Trino in what I consider like, you know, pretty tricky edge cases or also very common, like this is what Trino can actually do. So it should be very cool to uh, talk about that with you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Thank thanks for having, having us. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually super excited about this. Uh, a couple of you all know that I have like a, a Marine Corps military background. So, and I actually did a lot of work uh, on, you know, networks and a little bit with uh, databases and things like that. It's actually what got me into, um, you know, Trino and, and all this other big data stuff. Uh, and so I, I always find that, you know, when I was, my time back in the military, it was like, a, it was very difficult to get anything like, checked off, approved. And so I always know that the the contractors that I worked with uh, also had a huge uphill battle when it came to like getting anything, any any like, you know, uh, proprietary software approved. And so today I'm actually really excited to figure out what's the process that uh, you all at Wrapped have to go through to actually get the military and De Department of Defense to sign off on, uh, you know, an open source project. So I'm really excited. Uh, Let's start off with a couple introductions here. Uh, uh, Edward, would you want to, uh, you know, uh, give a little background on yourself and what you kind of do at Raft? Yeah, awesome. Thanks for uh, inviting us on. Really excited to talk about uh, Data Fabric and Raft. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, one of the tech leads on our Data Fabric project at Raft. Um, heavily use Trino, heavily use open source technology. We really try to go open source by default. Um, and make those contributions to the community. Um, yeah, I want to dive more into that too in, in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, we uh, we'll go a little bit more into it, um, I guess, as the conversation goes on. But uh, but just a, a brief snippet. You know, we're we're federating access to data silos. So there's big data everywhere. How do you get it, and how do you query over it? So yeah, a lot of natural times with Trino. Plenty, plenty of that too in the government, oh, yeah. right? So oh, gosh. yeah, <laughs> for um, sure. I, I I just know that from experience, but I'm sure you all have seen the gambit of of, of what how much there is out there in terms of mm -hmm. like everybody building their own little castles across different departments and different uh even reporting structures uh it's crazy <laughs> and so Definitely. uh steve, steve uh uh I've, I've heard you have more of a background than even before that predates rap uh with trino could you talk a little bit about that and, and what are you doing at rap now yeah sure so it, i i came to raft from lockheed martin and a lot of the work i was doing there was around their data lake environment oh, cool. and i was working use cases with our, what we were calling the industrial internet of things. Um, so it's an extra eye there. And also uh, doing use cases with our HR team. They've, they'd amassed a lot of data. And then I, I had some experience too, like from the menu, well, from the operations side um, with like F35 and Orion. Uh, so I touched a lot of projects there and it was all like with the intent of putting all of the data in a place where people could explore and use it. Uh, so I won't go too much more on that, but yeah, at Raft, uh, I am the chief data engineer. And so I am actually on contract at a software factory and I have some exposure into some of our other projects, uh, but you know, I, I'm long-term looking to continue to grow our data practice at, at Raft and what we do as data engineers. 
And, and did you bring like, I don't know what, what it was at the time when you came to Rapa, did, were you the one that kind of uh, evangelized Presto and Trino uh, in the Raft culture or was that somebody else? Um, that, that was somebody else. I, 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 I'm not sure who to give credit for. It was probably either Barat or Barack. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is actually why they kind of sought me, or Barat sought me out is because I had experience with Trino and Neil actually met Barat at some oh, conference cool. and said, oh, you should talk to this guy. And then it was like, so are we going to be partners or are you looking to hire? And he said, let's look at hire. Yeah, that's awesome. And here I am. Nice. Cool. Well, uh, without further ado, uh, uh, Manfred, why don't we hop into uh, the releases? Let me uh, quickly share my screen. Give me one second here. Hold on. Google. Google is being a little uh, awkward. <laughs> okay. So Manfred, we, we're talking, uh, we, we didn't really get the full stream of, of uh, multiple releases that we yeah. usually do because we only had three weeks. But what, what, what happened in the last couple of weeks? Um, well, we uh, ended up releasing only two releases, 392 and then 393 actually just yesterday, the week yep. before we had a bit of a hiccup with travels and um, a release blocker and other things. So we ended up tossing the idea to release last week. So mm -hmm. we only have two releases, but that doesn't mean that there is less to be talking about. Like, yeah. on I think there's some really amazing features that, that, that hit it. And so that's, that's always good. To well, see, we'll definitely right? need to talk about the game changer that came around in 393, but yeah, let's start with 392. Well, which game changer are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know right? a lot of them are coming out of game changers, but I'm talking about this, this first little bullet point here. I'm really excited. About. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's just dive into it. Okay. Dive into that one first. Cause that's the one I think that everybody's excited about and buzzing. Yeah. About so, today. <laughs> so I mean, the, the anti-cycle support for Trina is pretty amazing, right? And we have things where, like, you know, we ended up over the years getting, like, insert, obviously, very soon. But then we got update, delete. And one of the last holdouts, to some degree, of the major keywords was merge. And merge is yeah. now supported. So yep. um, that's pretty amazing. As usual in Trino, right, like, um, the engine has to support it. That's completely done now. Yeah. And then the relevant connectors also have to support it. And all our, um, what what I call them, object storage or lake house connectors do support it now. Yep. So um, we actually have five, right? There was there's Hive, um, Delta, and Iceberg. And then there were two more. And I can't remember. Yeah, I think Kudu uh, or something Kudu. weird yeah. came in. I'm like, I didn't really understand the logic how Kudu came in. But well, whatever. Like, you know, the, the community yeah. must be interested in that. I honestly don't know. Um, it always is driven a bit by the community of what they're doing, right? Like, yeah. for example, fault tolerant execution is also one of those things like our project tardigrade. Those kind of like fault tolerant execution behaviors of yeah. like storing data on the fly, your splits and stuff during processing, they need to be managed and only yeah. some connectors support them. But it, again, it's the, the major use cases. Also, like you'll see like, when you talk to Edward and Steve, a lot of Trino usage is with lake houses. Yeah. And so those connectors are crucial and yeah. they get a lot of, a lot of improvements. Also like that's also one thing that I wanted to mention in the last two releases, there's a, a ton that went into Delta Lake Hive and Iceberg again, like yep. performance improvements, like dynamic filtering and stuff like that in the more generic thing, but then also very specific, uh, performance improvements. Um, Iceberg got Avro support now, so it's org and Avro now. I mean, it always supported Avro kind of 
transparently in the sense that the metadata files in Iceberg are Avro, but that's kind of a different use case, right? Yeah. So now the actual data files can also be Avro. And I had an also interesting conversation um, recently. Uh, there's also some rumbling about potentially even having another file format in Iceberg that has some advantages. The Puffin file. format. <laughs> the Puffin format. Yeah, so we'll see what comes out of that. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I think from the enhancements you see, um, the there's some security fixes for OAuth refresh tokens that's worth mentioning. Um, if you're using that, then you want to make sure you upgrade to 3.93. And then, you know, we sprinkled a few improvements like select pushdown for S3 or the JSON and byte data types in Pino. And then a couple of re uh, release fixes, like fixes, correctness fixes for the JDBC connectors, but nothing major. But it's definitely worth updating. And also, I wanted to quickly point out also, like this is now our fourth release with Java 17, and everything is going great. So there's been no hiccups, no negative feedback um, that like is blocking anyone. So Trino seems to be behaving very nicely in Java nice. 17. So the switch over to um, language feature Java 17 is probably coming in one of the next releases. I, I haven't heard anybody specifically mention any performance improvements. I'm curious to know if you've heard anything, Manfred. No, I haven't heard anything, but um, I think to, for some use, like for Star Wars Galaxy, for example, it's hard to say because we've been running in Java 17 for, for months already. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. earlier. So, um, but like my main concern was that people keep like, you know, whining about, well, I have to upgrade the Java version, stuff like that, but that didn't come up, right? Like, I mean, yeah. a lot of users will also probably talk about that with Steve and Edward, they end up running in Kubernetes, and so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like, it's as in the container, whatever yeah. the runtime is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're so. getting we're getting a lot better there. It's no, it's no longer, gone are the days of Tarball and RPM, right? <laughs> well, we still do that too, but yeah. <laughs> well, we have it, but I'm just saying, it's like, I think, uh, if you look at the a good majority of the people that were doing the grumbling before now are on Kubernetes. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, All right. Great. Well, that's I think that's it from the releases. So I I I just want to dive into Raft. And before we do that specifically, I also want to say something uh, with regards to the use cases of Raft. Um, I've worked in like various scenarios, and I also have a European background. Um, so the like siloed off deployment use case with no internet connection and stuff is very common. It's not like a military only like mm. sort of like requirement. It's very common that companies say, well, like can't have your data on any US company sort of stuff, infrastructure and, and what has to have our own data center, can't have, talk to the internet because of XYZ, like health, like, you know, any, any sort of like ISO health, FDA, whatever requirements. So a lot of these scenarios that we'll talk about with Edward and Steven, I think yeah. apply to a very large range of users and anyone can benefit from understanding that a bit better. So totally. tell us more. <laughs> well, well, before we get into that, let's, uh, I wanted to quick say hi to Evan uh, on, uh, on from LinkedIn. Uh, hey, Evan, I, and I'm gonna see if I can not butcher your last name, Guarnasia, I will assume. <laughs> Hopefully that was right. Uh, you, you know more I, Spanish than me, so <laughs> I'll be quiet here. <laughs> uh, I don't, well, I, I, I have broken Spanish, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to uh, say, hey, hey to Evan, thanks for joining the, the stream. And uh, without further ado, let's go on to the concept of the week. Uh, wait, 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 I don't have it. I don't have it. It's on the wrong spot. It is right. Perfect. 
Brian? <laughs> I I thought I, it got switched around since the last time I was on. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I was like, wait, wait, it's not there. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, now now that I have totally uh, uh, gotten all puzzled up, uh, let's just hand this off to our guest today, uh, Edward or Steve. Or actually, Steve, I think you're you're hitting off. T tell us a little bit about uh, you know tr Trino and Raft. And actually, you know what? This is, these are more I think for more for us to to have anyways. We don't need to, need to have these up. Um, tell us a little bit about Trino and Raft, and 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 like I, I really want to kind of understand you know what what's the kind of uh, what is Raft? What is what are you all trying to do? And how do you use Trino? What's kind of the core, uh, you know, business uh, initiative there with what with what Raft's doing? Sure. So, Raft is a digital native firm that is primarily working with the U.S. government. Uh, we support currently ten software factories across the Department of Defense. Uh, what, what is a software factory? Sure. Uh, so a software factory <laughs> is some, it was an idea created by, I believe, Nick Shalane, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, to try to begin to standardize and modernize the way that we do software across the Department of Defense, mainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, any context can use this concept, but the idea is that, that the government doesn't really produce a lot of software or had not been producing a lot of software. So we're going to make software factories because they actually produce something. Mm -hmm. So let's come up with standard stacks that we could deploy in virtually any location and mature those stacks using DevOps, modern uh, programming and development practices. Mm -hmm. And those practices can then help us once we have standard processes, make sure that everything is hardened and that it is continuously deployable, continuously integrated, and that we're actually doing things in a much faster pace. Because mm -hmm. the old days of uh, big contractors going in, and this is kind of like the story behind Kessel Run a little bit, that multiple, I think it was actually Lockheed Martin and then Northrop Grumman both failed to develop an effective air operation actually it's an air battle management system mm -hmm. that they're using at the air operations center and they both had failed uh, a partnership was formed with pivotal and they got mm -hmm. mvp capabilities out in like 18 months or something and it was this is the spring pivotal right the one that's the yeah. people behind spring okay yeah, that was really the start of the, the software factory movement. Okay. Uh, and then I, I think platform one was what came next. And okay. uh, I heard from a friend at Kessel Run that they were not super excited about it because it was like, well, that was the point of what we were doing. So you're just copying the thing that we're trying to use to standardize. But mm. anyway, um, it, it, I think there is you know valid value to in having independent software factories because they all have specific needs that they're trying to meet. You know, there, okay. there's a few that Raft is involved with, which are focused in like cyber operations. The stack that you might need for cyber operations could be very different from the stack that you would need for supporting air operations. And you know, we're, we're involved with Space Camp too. So you can imagine that these software factories and the use cases that they're supporting within the Department of Defense mm -hmm. is very data intensive. So yeah. that's where it makes sense for Raft to be 
developing what we're calling a government off the shelf, which is a, I think an industry accepted term, but not gots. Gots. Yeah. <laughs> let's say that all day. <laughs> um, so, so just, just to like sort of put this a bit into like my level of understanding, how far does the stack go? Like, you're like, I think like, or like a factory, like it takes care of like, I don't know, like maybe Kubernetes at the bottom and then a bunch of other infrastructure tooling, some sort of standards for monitoring, standards for programming language, implementation details and that kind of, but how far up the stack does it go? Like, do you have like a standard schema for people management or like a standard UI framework for web browser? Like how far up? Or down does it go? I'll give the political answers. I think it varies. Uh, what I've seen is yes, you're going to start from the Kubernetes level. And once you've got that basic platform, and we have platform engineering teams at Raft that do that sort of thing, then you're going to start to deploy your basic services that would come along with that platform. So you're going to need things like monitoring. So let's put Prometheus and Grafana out there. And mm -hmm. you're going to need things like the Elk stack for you know doing I always forget the security in logging management you know basically put all my logs into a system so that I can query them and figure out if somebody's trying to attack me or something's broken yeah. um, it'll go even further up you, know, you could have relational types of databases in there as well you're going to have basic app stacks that can communicate with those uh, I mean it, it can cover uh, the intent I should say is to cover a large you know 80 percent sort of like types of use cases mm -hmm. give you what you need what you would need to branch out from there to fit more specific types of case i don't know if edward you'd like to add anything yeah no i think you nailed it i mean the, the intent is you know you don't want to reinvent the wheel in times for in application teams you know there's so much rework that you can avoid if you have this common infrastructure stack it reduces your security vulnerabilities because you know where everybody's starting from so there are a lot of benefits to it but yeah steve you did a great and then i guess also like a lot of procedures and like knowledge sharing becomes applicable right like whoever figures out something that's super helpful for logging while well, all the other teams that use the, the same factory can learn from that and vice versa yeah, for sure. Or patching even, like if there's something oh, yeah, that you patching. find the vulnerability or something like that, just you patch it across, everybody's the same, right? So very interesting. Now, you, the specific space that you all are working in, at least with this data fabric uh, thing, is this like, is this a stack? You know, data fabric is a stack, that off-the-shelf stack, or is it like a segment of a stack? Like, how does that? Yeah, work? yeah. What is the data fabric? <laughs> it's kind of a kind of an interesting an interesting concept. Yeah, the data fabric we're really uh, trying to make you know its own stack where it has minimal dependencies because you know it needs to be able to be deployed on the edge in the cloud on a different Kubernetes instance. So we really want it to be able to be you know variable and really versatile. So mm -hmm. it gives you the the core, you know, sort of Kubernetes like management uh, tooling, you know, there's logging in there, there's, you know, what you would expect. Um, and then we're trying to build on top of that, the tooling for analytics for AIML at the edge and in the cloud. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is, I think, becoming this the stack for, you know, data operations. 
And do you have to go through like, what's the, like, because you're not, you're not a software factory per se. You're, you're a, con a contractor that is uh, providing like kind of a drop in stack, I guess, for, for these other software factories to maybe kind of use in, in multi, because I mean, analytics can cross cut a lot of these different concerns, mm -hmm. right? And so you're, I guess you're kind of trying to be, uh, use data fabric as a, as a kind of common component to other data stacks. Is that is that yeah. making sense or is that am i totally missing the mark here i think i think our, our cto barat had he coined a term uh single pane of glass over different silos of data over different you know places where you can get data from we okay. want to be that common interface between you know wherever you're actually getting your data sets from um, that's that's a core goal okay. and, and trina sits in that Oh, Trino is natural. You know, I mean, you think SQL distributed SQL query engine over everything that fits really nicely with how data fabric, how we think about that. Yeah. Is that kind of the interface to data fabric or is it like, not, not obviously user interface, but I mean, like, is that kind of the, the single point that you try to like expose to anybody who's using this single pane of glass? Yeah. Yeah. Trino. Yeah. It's interesting too, because, you know, Trino has this wide support for, you know, any kind of, you know, many kinds of like different access to data. Um, I think particularly with the data silos we're working with, they often have their own sort of bespoke layering on top of it. So we're using Trino to access data sets that, that we're sort of pulling in. Uh, from these, you know, like large data silos. But yeah, as far as, you know, what the user sees, you know, you would expect that most data analysts or data scientists are going to know SQL, right? They're going to have yeah. some level of familiarity. You can hook up a JD JDBC connector, use the Trino Python library. It's yeah. this really nice suite of, of access tools. Yeah. Now, now with, I feel like Trino brings on this, you know, all of that capability and all of this, you know, access, but that's also potentially like a security concern for a lot of, especially when it comes to like, you know, okay, I, I'm running this in a unclassified cluster now, you know, and so I, uh, and what happened, like, how do you, you know, set up the uh, standards around making sure that I don't connect to something that's sitting in zipper land. Uh, so sorry, uh, I'll explain what zipper is. It's a, it's a, what is it? Secret, uh, IP uh, routing network, right? Is that, and so um, these are basically like the secret networks versus the unclassified networks uh, that you'll be running in these in these uh, places. And I remember it was very like, even if you are walking into rooms uh, when you're like dealing with secret stuff, uh, you have to like get checked when you're walking out of these rooms to make sure that like you're not taking a CD or any type of like disc that is about to leave the secret room. So like we, they're, they're very, government is very serious about how they separate these things. And I feel like, you know, government people are going to have a concern and the policymakers are gonna have a very deep concern about, well, is Trino gonna connect to one of these very sensitive, you know, things on accident or somehow, and what, what, what how do you convince people that this is still a good idea? Uh, how do you talk about the processes that you know, make people feel more comfortable about having all that access because it's already a problem in business. Oh yeah, it's 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 a it's a much scarier problem in, in you know from the effects in military and government. That's one of the first questions we get asked. You know, we demo this. <laughs> they're like, well, what if you have two users and they have these like fine grained differences? Um, I think we kind of go about it in two ways. So 
we want to be that single pane of glass. But, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, these like large data silos, a lot of them have their own sort of access controls. So mm -hmm. we definitely have to respect those. We definitely have to delegate to those. And those dictate what we can even bring in for a particular user. Mm -hmm. um, I think on top of that, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're open source, very open source friendly. So we're using tools like the Open Policy Agent to have this sort of, you know, uh, policy and code to where you have this version control, like here's a clear cut listing of how we're managing access mm -hmm. to different data sets. And I think that does a lot, you know, when you can actually see a listing of like, well, here's the rules. I think that yeah. alleviates a lot of policy as code that's become huge in like data mesh. Yeah. Yeah. That's big. So, so how, how does that actually work in terms of like Trino in your cases then? Like what yeah. are you using as the like connected catalogs or door, like storages? Yeah. And, what, yeah. what do you use like what gamut of like choice like i'm guessing you're definitely using some sort of hive connector here and there but like what about like relational databases or mm -hmm. like you mentioned the elk stack are you using brian's favorite connector as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's so you know and a lot of it's you know we're still we're still even ironing out a lot of these access controls i think our primary sort of ways we're thinking about pulling data in are you know data at rest uh data you know streaming and then the sort of ad hoc data in maybe like a blob format so then you so, you know the the sort of tools that are there for that or the technologies for kafka is sort of the industry standard for streaming in a lot of cases trino is great for that Obviously, relational databases like Postgres or MySQL or whatever, we can pull that in. Hmm. And then S3 or Minio for your blob storage, your ad hoc. And Trino interfaces with those all. It gives you, you know, that sort of common entry point. So if we can secure, you know, tie in OPA, tie in, you know, our policy controls to Trino, we don't have to have that myriad of, of security you know, vulnerabilities and arrangements like out where the user is, yeah. you, can, you can push those back. So you're saying if you, Trino actually serves as actually kind of a, a connect, like kind of what one place for where, where all this can go. And so you focus a lot of your securing efforts and access uh, uh, protocols around Trino and you don't have to now think through what does that mean percolating down? Like as long as you've got it right from the single source of, of like where people are accessing all this data from you, your job actually becomes simpler in that respect. Yes. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's just to add in a little bit too. Um, so it kind of gives us that abstraction, like you're saying, and it's sort of an access control broker in a way that yeah. now I'm not required to push down authorization and authentication to the source system, yeah. which may be ideal and could have some benefits to it. But that's extremely complicated to do in practice. Yeah. All of your systems would have to support even just Kerberos. Yeah. And like I've tried to I tried to do that for years. And it's like it's kind of a hopeless bet. Like yeah. the, the maturity of data storage systems just isn't really there yet to yeah. be passing around identity between systems like that. You can do it probably fine in like a single app, but to do it in a very complex multi multiple siloed systems. It's just like you need a different approach to this problem. And Trino gives us an abstraction that makes that possible. Yeah, so it's kind of acts like a firewall, almost like you're you're sitting in, or you're sitting inside of like a virtual kind of environment that people cannot, you know, as long as you've secured the, the like single point of access, right? You're 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 essentially keeping yourself safe. You're safeguarding yourself uh, from from all sorts of other attacks 
uh, or vulnerabilities that maybe these other systems have. And all you're thinking about now is Trino. Right. If, if the user doesn't know what data they're not getting, then, you yeah. know, yeah. So, so what are you specifically using? I, I say, you said you mentioned the open policy agent kind of work. Like how does that sit in Trino? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is possibly also still in flight too. This is something we're still exploring. Um, so we've tied open policy agent in, you can run it in a, a sort of service mesh, um, sort of pattern where it's sitting alongside each of your, um, each of your apps. And, you know, we're using it in Trino based on, you know, user roles. We're using like key cloak as our, as our OIDC, uh, sort of tool. Okay, so. Yeah. So we, we tie open policy agent into there. You say, you know, your basic, you know, user role, your RBAC role-based stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the big questions that we're, that we're looking at right now is what happens when that changes? Like what happens when your authentic, you know, your identity provider is completely different because, you know, the DOD, like any business anywhere, you know, maybe doesn't have a single source of truth for every single identity. Um, so making that swappable and versatile with something like OPA is really nice because you don't have to control all of your specific fine grained access in whatever tool, you know, you're actually managing it. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about, you know, Iron Bank, how does Data Fabric kind of uh, interface with that? And, and how does that actually end up getting deployed onto um, these actual, these actual like, um, uh, the, uh, not, not software factories, no, it's the, uh, or the actual like uh, customers, I guess, or the, you know, different departments. Sure. So like at a software factory, they will use Iron Bank images. To What's Iron Bank? Deploy software. So Have Iron Bank. Game of Thrones. What's that? <laughs> Haven't you watched Game of Thrones? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Iron Bank. I, I love have, it. I was told that I should. Yeah. Um, so Iron Bank is an image repository, just the same way as you would call out to Google's image repo or Docker's image repo. Iron Bank is just another image repo, but there's a more serious hardening process that goes into accepting an image as being available in Iron Bank. So you've got to be able to, you know, make sure you've eliminated all of your CVEs and that the image is basically clean. You got no highs or criticals. Uh, there can be exception processes around it. Uh, and all, all this stuff is freely available on the web too, if anybody is like additionally. So Bank is a, a container registry similar to like Harbor or something like that or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, so is if, if Iron Bank and Iron Bank's publicly available, do they actually where do they get their images from? Like, so we we you know, push our images to like various uh, like essentially have our Helm chart and we push it to, uh, to onto like Artifact Hub and things like that, which get ultimately pulled into like the Google uh, um, and and GitHub. Or sorry, yeah, no, we're using GitHub's uh, container uh, one. Is that are they copying images? So if they're I guess Trino's on there, right? If you're all using it. Um, so, so Trino gets pulled from like, let's say the, the GitHub, uh, public repository and they just do some extra vetting around it or they run their own, like their own build. There's a that. submission process. So okay. either you know, a government person could be a sponsor. If you okay. want to get a fast track, you go 
shake hands with your favorite general and say, we got to get this in. But, um, <laughs> for, for the rest of the world, you can just submit like anybody else would. You give a justification so that it can be triaged. And then okay. you know, there's some kind of like paperwork steps that okay. you'll have to follow. But once it's submitted, it just needs to be scanned. And once the scans are clear and you've hit the other check boxes, then it can be accepted in Iron Bank and everybody can pull from it. Okay. So and, you, and new versions go in there uh, kind of regularly and, and then they just, they test every single version, I assume? Yes. Yes. Okay. You, you will continue to be scanned and the image will need continued maintenance too. Okay. You know, if it comes up dirty because you increased your version. Somebody's got to clean it up before it's going to be available to the public through Iron Bank on that version. Okay. Very cool. I think it also goes the other way. I mean, I don't know, like for IMBank specifically, but often these security vulnerabilities also go the other way, right? Like your image is accepted and then a new vulnerability is detected and suddenly your image yeah. is affected and then you have to have some sort of like deprecation process or yeah. removal process and stuff like that. So are you are you managing Trino to get into IMBank or who is doing that? I believe that Booz Allen took that on uh, and is doing the noble work for us at this nice. point. Nice. Last I knew, I I did push for it personally, but I found out that they were a little bit ahead of us. So glad that they're doing that. Um, well, thanks to Booz Allen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it'd be very interesting to get feedback in terms of like if there's any blockers found and so on. Yeah, especially those, and then adjust mm -hmm. our images, right? Yeah, yeah. we should like, talk a little bit after this. <laughs> yeah, on the images, we, for example, for, like we had a lot of changes over, like for, for other people in the Trino ecosystem, we changed to Java 17. Before that, we had the base image was sent to us as a base container. Then we changed to the the super light image from Red Hat. I forgot what it's called now. Um, oh, I got I, I forgot it too. Anyway, they're like a, a smaller base image, but now we changed with uh, Azure. Uh, sorry, with, with Java 17 upgrade, we changed to the super light uh, base image from Azul because we use the Azul Zulu uh, JDK 17 images because they are like very close and get lots of security patches. So there is like an, uh, like there's a migration path that doesn't affect you as a developer. Like you just get the latest container, but you get a lot of benefits from our work in that aspect. So it'll be good to know if there's anything found. We can bubble that up. And then maybe even talk all the way to a school or whatever. And I don't know what's underneath the hood for them again. So that'd be super good. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, for data fabric, it means, you know, that's there. It's there. And it makes yep. the process of like certification and approval a lot easier. You don't have to get four or five different connector containers, you know, done. If you build them yourself, you'd have to upload those all. Yeah. That's cool. Okay, so you have multiple of these kind of going out now. You're like, you get these kind of deployed through tr traditionally through Kubernetes. There's no, there seems to be like Kubernetes is, is the process as well in the government that's been accepted, right? I, I think there, nobody's pushed back on, on anything like that that's kind of accepted now. Or... Yeah, like pretty much every request for information that I've seen lately, it's explicitly citing using. Is it cloud native, native computing foundation principles that okay. basically states Kubernetes, we're not going to vendor lock into a specific cloud provider. But then so, you said you have a relationship with Pivotal, so you're often using the Pivotal container service or whatever it's called? It's 
yes, it's not the most popular choice, and I, I don't think it's going to be the long-term solution, but Pivotal has been used in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's, as long as it's a container, Kubernetes version yeah. that's relatively new, I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that versus all the other threads. Like, every one of those container platforms has their wrinkles, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So uh, from the end user perspective and kind of what they end up gaining from this, like, can you walk us through like, you know, what, what, what your, what kind of problems like, you know, are you solving when you do put data fabric there from the kind of, you know, people that are, are typically uh, the kind of target users? Are they, you know, are they data scientists or what are, are they generals or who, who are the people that are kind of uh, using these systems and, and what's their experience like with data fabric? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think typically um, when we think about data fabric, the end user is somebody who is, you know, looking at data sets, looking for data somewhere, um, because, you know, DOD, like anywhere else, has all of these, you know, data silos, uh, data lakes, where it's very bespoke to access any of them. So getting a single pane of glass across that naturally helps. If you can have somebody who's not super, you know, heavy software oriented, able to pull a data set in and then execute a SQL command or, you know, generate a chart or something, that's the win. You know, that's, yeah. that's one of the things we're really going for with data. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and is there anything out there even close to this, like that in, in military right now that they've been able to try, like, is there, is there like spark doing data warehousing type stuff where they're trying to centralize it at least, but then they just are probably having some troubles there with the traditional data warehousing woes. So or like, uh, the universal yeah. data library is one like specific example. I'm not sure what the technology is underlying that, but isn't uh, Edward? Please correct me if this is not right. Mm -hmm. I believe that is an Air Force data lake, basically, mm -hmm. and that is an environment which we have connected the data fabric to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah, definitely. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's kind of the problem where it's like that X, XKCD where it's like you know you have 14 standards you try and make a 15th and now you have yeah. so we're trying to get around that we're not going to be another data lake we're going to be a, a way to get data from those lakes yeah that's that's the one thing that I I personally felt more drawn to Trino for even in just like you know outside of uh, military stuff you you have the same issues right and it's it's not something that's creating a new thing it's 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 kind of replacing some old older kind of uh ways of doing previous engines like hive and iceberg mm -hmm. but then it's kind of unifying then everybody else who's come before and you know use cases that those particular systems have solved well and it's not trying to necessarily it, it is doing something novel in that it's unifying them uh in, in a way that has it has not done so before where you don't have to move any of that data like doing the whole data warehousing approach or even data lake approach if you don't want to you can just keep things where they are you know and and that i think is the very strong point of of trino and i'm sure that that kind of that probably is a you know for for the security reasons alone that we just cited but then just the simplicity um and and making that uh, all that data accessible now how about dealing with different so you have these different layers of security, right? Uh, um, and, you know, unclassified, you probably have to deploy a Trino in each, right? Is that, is that true? Or, or can tree is tree, is there a Trino that can be deployed, uh, in an, 
admit, let's say a secret zone that has access. Oh, I guess, you know, you can go the other way. Sorry. A Trino and an unclassified zone that can reach into secret zone. And I'm guessing you can't do that, right? You have to have different data fabrics deployed in different securities, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a reason why we want to be so flexible because just by the very nature of how these things work, we're going to have to be everywhere. You know, we're going to have to be in the environments where the data sets are, you know? Yeah. So I guess as you get more classified, Trino can access actually going towards the unclassified. So so if you're in like SCI and mm-hmm. you're pointing back to like secret and unclassified, you, you should be able to pretty much see the whole world uh, and kind of merge those data sets together. It's just as you, exactly. yeah, that's essentially the the total superset of everything that you could see at that point. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I wonder what you're what you're able to find at that level too when you're able to join all you'd of have that. To be, you'd I'm have sure, to yeah. be, you'd have to get that super access first, right? Yeah, <laughs> gotta go to Mar a Lago. That's where the the. the... I was waiting. <laughs> anyway. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So so on the on the higher level, then so you have you have Trina in place uh, connected to that storage. What happens next? Like. You have that standardized SQL access to the supported data sources. How do you then facilitate that? Like, what's the typical, like, do people use Jupyter Notebooks or yeah. like hook up with, I don't know, DDiva or like, what are, what's the, like, what happens on top of that for dashboarding? Like, do you use Apache Superset or mm-hmm. tell me, tell me what, what the sort of scenarios you have in the stacks there? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, again, we've got to be as flexible as possible. So with the the sort of data fabric stack that we have, we want the ability for sort of the exploratory data analysis, like give me a, you know, a SQL terminal as quickly as possible. Superset is great for that because you get a SQL editor in the browser, you get some visualization tools for making charts or dashboards. Um, And then the second level is, you know, if you're a data scientist, you want tre- or you know what, you want Jupiter. You know, you want to be able to actually pull some data into some data frames. That's another primary access point. And then application level interfacing. So exposing, you know, exposing interfaces where you can hook up, you know, a JDBC connection or something to actually go through and get the data programmatically. Oh, you have actual like like custom applications that go in via JDBC into Trino to get the data, but then do some custom rendering or whatever math analysis or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, I don't know if we've got any currently, but that's definitely going to be a primary way to access, especially if you are, you know, thinking data fabric to data fabric, where you've got multiple fabrics that may have, you know, different information in either that programmatic connection is going to be huge. Just you know, visualize what's, you know, across the mesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very cool. How do you, uh, are, are you all kind of rolling your own standard right now when it comes to CODIS policy? Or is there actually a, uh, like, agreed upon standard across the Department of Defense for that? There's yeah, no standard. <laughs> yeah. I, are, are you all working on creating something at least for Raft and then, like, because I, I, this is a, this is a question in data mesh today. Like, this is something that, that, and I'm, I'm actually hoping even we at Starburst can start thinking about this kind of question of like, how do we standardize, um, you know, how, how do we standardize the code as policy? Because if you can actually essentially get a Kubernetes level agreed upon standard, like, how do you, you know, have some, some. Uh, 
policy that is written down in some YAML format or whatever it is, JSON. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is ultimately what decides how long certain data lives, how long the, you know, pe people have access to it and when that expires and all this stuff could be very easily encoded and automated and taken away from humans running amok, you know? And I think that just in terms of security and what you all are caring about there, like, you know, that, that it, I always wondered if that would ever come out of the government because I feel like that's the most important in government. And so have you all looked and seen anything starting to sprout around in the- I personally think that open policy agent is the closest thing to there being an accepted standard right now. Cool. It's the most mature CNCF kind of native, I think incubating still project yeah. that answers the mail on it. But I, I don't think it covers all cases though, because it's- you It's could, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think too, there's a role for like the data catalog to play in this where something yeah. like the data hub or similar mm -hmm. could be used for developing the policy by like somebody who's more of a data steward, mm -hmm. but you can export that in a technical format and then convert it into something that OPA could understand. Uh, that's where I sort of see things going is like, there's probably going to be some backend tool that can handle a lot of it, but you're going to need more front end tools for people who don't want to write YAML. Yeah. That makes it a little bit easier to use. Yeah. yeah. What? You don't like YAML? <laughs> I have no issue writing YAML. I, love you, but... <laughs> <laughs> I hate YAML. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely hate writing Data types it. are a little bit annoying because it's like, yeah. what do you mean it's not? Indentation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody hates indentation. Everybody hates, like, and it's just like, it's so hard to debug if you do have, like, one small oh thing wrong. Gosh, you just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, lint every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's yeah, lints and stuff like that, but then there's times where the lints even fail you <laughs> if it's like technically. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, cool. So, um, I mean, that that definitely gives us a good picture, I think. Like, what, what have there been time, like, where, where are you seeing still the challenges that you on, on the RAP team are facing, like getting adoption or any kind of like pushback to? like this this type of thing like where are the problem spaces still that you're still trying to solve and like grow out the data fabric to actually uh adhere to these you know different problems as well as like where do you think really trino doesn't fit in the military or dod space and like how's that you know kind of how's that kind of like maybe making you think like where do we move you know outside of data, data fabric as well like are there other solutions that you're also looking into that you know go outside of this that you know, um, solve, solve a, a similar data problem, but maybe in a different way. So mm -hmm. I think honestly, you know, going back to like what problems or what, what challenges do we have? I think a lot of times when we talk about the data fabric, it sounds, I think people jump to the conclusion that we're just another data lake or yeah. that we are going to sort of latch on to a data lake and just be the front end for that data lake, right? Those are the two, I think, conceptions that are really common. Yeah. We, have, we have to really push against that and say like, you know, we're not trying to be another data lake and we're not trying to be one data lake. We're, we're trying to sort of federate access and, and sort of have a more embedded, like edge friendly data mesh. Yeah. We're not it's not a hub and spoke. It's not data silo in the center and processing at the edge where you pull it down. It's data everywhere, data where you need it. And yeah. it's it's a lot easier to to sort of, you know, do data analysis on. Yeah. I mean, I think Trino does, you know, if, I mean, 
I think the only disadvantage is it's not even something necessarily that 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 is common to Trino, but it's just that there are so many bespoke ways of showing up, you know, showing your data. Is it is it behind a REST API? Is it behind some weird way of accessing the data that no standardized connector can really can really access easily? So that I think is where we've had to do some some additional work there. So it seems like misconception, and then there's kind of this analysis paralysis of like, what do we even go with? There's so many, there's now some uh, 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 Cambrian explosion of data solutions that you're like, where do we even begin with this? And we 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 see this for sure on the trio side. I feel like what you just expressed was like the kind of misconceptions and difficulties that we have just at, at Trino at baseline. Um, yeah. You know, people just see us as like, yeah. yeah, it's a, is it a database or a data lake? You know, okay, well, it's, it, it, it helps with that. We've replaced Hive in a lot of ways and we've become this really good query engine that does sit on that, but it's so much more. And I, I there was actually a very popular like data CEO who I will not mention, who even hopped in on like a, a Hacker News thread uh, that was talking about Trino and, and he had the same misconception. Uh, and totally. so it's like, it's, 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 it's even people who are in the data space don't get really what differentiates Trino in that sense, in that it's it's not just a data like query engine. It is, but it is also so much more in terms of the federation capabilities, in terms of now the ability to do ETL and all this stuff. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's really, you know, we if that's on us to try to really get people to understand that better as well. But uh, also very happy that you all are, are being prolific on the DOD side, trying to get that message out as well. And I think that that's a, it's a hard one to sell people because limited attention spans and stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's, hard, to, yeah. it's hard to get people to get that. So. Yeah, just to, for some uh, practical examples, because you mentioned REST APIs, like, uh, and how, like, you know, there's weird ways to access data. I mean, that's essentially one of the core Trini use cases to be able to, ex to connect to whatever and expose it in a tabular format. And like simple mm -hmm. use cases are implemented. Like, for example, we have the Google Sheets collector that mm -hmm. where every Google sheet in a, like basically a sort of like a spreadsheet is exposed as a table, but then also more advanced examples that we use successfully in the Trino community efforts, for example, is we, uh, Jan wrote a a HTTP client connector that can yeah. connect to whatever REST API as a base framework. And then he also has a GitHub connector. So we pull GitHub stats via the GitHub API, dump it into via that connector, dump it into like via create table as statements and like insert statements, dump that into a data lake, and then we query it from there, right? So GitHub is sort of used as the source and it like Trino totally understands and can work with these REST APIs. So query, query that anyone can, can can attack, right? So yeah. if you have any any of that kind of stuff in your scenario, you can also implement oh. a custom connector and like Starburst, for example, has a Salesforce connector that talks mm -hmm. to the Salesforce API, right? Yeah. So yeah. those are yeah, really yeah, no, I think <laughs> most compelling use case for Trino is for analysts or engineers who don't really know how they want to structure their end data product yet. Yeah, it, They know I kind of want some stuff from these various sources. It gives you the freedom because it's schema on read yeah. to experiment a little bit with how you want to structure your end results so that you're not like trying to engineer something before you know exactly what you're trying to solve for. And like I found in the past when people bought into that, then they started really building traction 
in this model. Whereas, you know, this, I've run into a lot of relational like zealots They're like, well, we can just do it in this way. It's like, you don't have to though. Like yeah. there are simpler models that you can work in and you could still put it there if you want, it's, it'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like being able to, you know, run over something that's, let's say a NoSQL database that is very loose in the beginnings, you know, essentially you could have a couple, you know, main, uh, keys there or something like that, let's say a Mongo or an Elasticsearch, and you have keys in the core uh, document, and then you have like essentially a bag of words, you know, that will just be your unofficial model <laughs> until further notice. And you can actually do joins with that on the more, you know, kind of established uh, uh, structure uh, part of your of your schema that you've been slowly developing. And I think it just gives, it, it makes it so that your upfront modeling doesn't have to be so perfect you know, you could essentially like uh, play around and, and, and have a little bit of that curious nature versus having to think about everything all up front. Uh, it's very important to, to kind of have that flexibility and, and uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, uh, versatility. Um, yeah. Yeah. Our, the work that we're doing with Corsair Ranch, that's another software factory. Um, they're focused on the National Guard, but they're, they're running uh, training flights mm -hmm. and there's a ton of data that's coming off of these training flights every time because we're observing, uh, I, I believe it's the, there's some sensors to record like body uh, critical measures. And there's also, we're getting sorting data from the flight itself, wow. get that onto an edge device. And then we're gonna get it into more central processing from there. So we'll forward things off through Kafka and then we'll get it into somewhere that they could actually use it to present back to like the analysts and the officers that are working at Corsair Ranch. So then we can go and kind of like fast track all this stuff. So it's like, all right, we got your data. We can automatically do a little bit of organization with it and some transformation and we'll push things right over to Superset and running uh, queries off of Trino. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, you're cooking with peanut oil at that point because yeah like, oh well, we got data and it like it sat in the disk for a week and then we thought about picking it up and we got distracted so it's like yeah it yeah. super speeds things up yeah yeah especially around policy i i know that one thing i always hear people say is like you know getting people into meetings alone is already difficult but like i think fivefold for for you know department of defense and government regulation stuff like it adds so even such a heavier process to it. So if you can actually get something up front, get some agreement and buy into how Trino or data, particularly data fabric uh, works, and you you get that that buy into that that stack, then that just alleviates a lot of the the upfront uh, meetings that need to happen, the upfront policy that needs to get accepted for this to happen. It's literally just maybe a much more generalized, oh, we need to add one more thing under to the data fabric. Okay, let's have that small little bit. And then boom, it's it's now into the whole ecosystem of everything that you can query. And you don't have to think about how do we move this? How do, who's in charge of this and blah, blah, blah. No, it's like, it's just like, it takes away a lot of that necessity for meetings and all this other you know, discussion about how do we approach this? No, it's just going to be where it is, and Trino's just going to pull it up. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's huge. Um, anything else that we've kind of missed in terms of like, you know, what what else? What's what's exciting about Data Fabric and how you're using it with Trino, and uh, maybe even give us some examples of like, you know, you gave us the cool flight uh, examples. I, I'm 
I was totally excited about that. Like what, what else is out there and um, what are you guys excited about, uh, you know, uh, moving it, moving forward? Steve, I know you've got a lot, you've got a ton of like thoughts in your mind about where we can go with it. I want to hear. Um, so I am really hoping that we can get into more of like the condition based maintenance and like real time operation scenarios. Mm. Uh, there's not a ton that I'm aware of, which is done even for like basic metrics and simulation and exercise, like um, you know, there's areas of responsibility and there's like things like target custody and even just measuring like how effectively was this tracked in a simulation isn't done right now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because at least from what I've seen, the data isn't really used for anything. They're just like, oh yeah, we did it. And we did an exercise and we're all done. I think that we have a potentially huge play in getting more involved in those types of opportunities because we've got the tooling that can scale and be deployed anywhere in classified areas. And we can kind of just grow that. And then we can actually like help the DOD become more data driven in what's going on. because. Like there's lots of pockets, but there's no real consistency. And yeah. um, there's a lot of the way things had been done. And I'm sure you're aware, Brian, but the military tends to be a very conservative organization. Yeah. So, you know, there's the aspiration to be data driven. Yeah. And then there's like the reality yeah. is like there's a ton of work to do, even then like the cultural change side of it, because all it takes is an officer to go, you joined those two data sets that's classified now it's like well you just created six months worth of work so yeah. that's yeah. not acceptable like you know mo we've got to do something differently and better yeah um, yeah i think yeah. Is, that, is that also to go with that like you know how do you avoid those situations right where you're actually joining like uh what somebody had maybe misclassified or something and say oh well this is now, now that, or maybe it's the fact that now that they're together, that actually makes it more, you know, interesting information. And, you know, individually, they may not have been super interesting, but now that you've com combined them, you know, some, some pol like politician or some sort of essentially like general decides that this is, this is now something that needs to be behind closed doors. Like, how do you convince people like that this is, you know, actually what's causing a lot of our delays and, and kind of uh, our misinformation and, you know, people who are making decisions on, on a lot of these things. And like, is, are, is that something that you as RAF take on? Like, you know, as, as your executives like to bring that kind of to, you know, Hey, this could be so much better. Here's how it works in industry. Here's how it's working right now in the military. Like we see these particular instances where, where these things happen. Like, is, is that something you're taking on as a company? Yeah, yeah our, our executive leadership, like Shuvi is a big change agent. She wants to see the DOD function better. And you know, we, wow. we have other small business types like defense unicorns that are kind of fighting the same good fight to try and get the defense, the Department of Defense to kind of look at things a little bit differently yeah. and be a little bit more accepting of risk and change and balancing that against value so that we can really make an impact and do that faster. And like, that's kind of what Raft is all about is yeah. Yeah. making an impact over like, you know, just having a huge bottom line. Like we want to do better, you know, by our customers uh, and, and do so in innovative ways. So yes, we are going after that. 
uh, I'm happy to have the soapbox too to like, you know, yeah, on that tell, a bit as well. Yeah, to, to um, go for it. And also tell them, you know, is, is Raft hiring? <laughs> they are hiring. We're yeah. Definitely hiring. I think okay. we just, what I know we were over 100. I think we're at 110. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if anybody who's in the Trino community wants to work on a, on a really cool project, uh, do you have to be a U.S. citizen and all that stuff? Or what's the... Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> At Lockheed, that was always a requirement. I, I don't know if Raft has the same requirement. Okay. Uh, a lot of our employees do have clearances, so okay. that would apply yes. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, yes, not for me then. <laughs> <laughs> we can find work. So for stay you. up in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying in Canada anyway. <laughs> Uh, I'm good where I am. <laughs> well, that's really cool. So, I mean, just yeah. I mean, take your soapbox, man. I, I want to hear. I want to hear about like what's what. Are, what are the like uh, things you all are doing there, and uh, you know, uh, and and how Trino's fitting into that. If you if you have that, or just what all are you doing? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, getting a little bit scatterbrained on it, but um, so I, I think one of the solutions or potential solutions to that. This is classified now. Is having the stack that can handle it in various environments because if it's as simple as like we just need to get the data over the line sort of thing then mm -hmm. that's a lot easier problem than well we only have the tooling and unclass and we need this data for you know achieving this goal you know it, it's a very simple problem to go all right well we just got to find a you know a way to get it across and mm -hmm. that's not the easiest thing either um we are doing a little bit of work in that regard to try and make it simpler to get data sort of over the line so that it's in a classified environment mm -hmm. or even, you know, disconnected network environment. Okay. But um, yeah, having the stack in place and then having a process to make it simpler to move the data over, I think is the best solution that we could come up with at this point. Um, but there's also like the cultural issue that people are just afraid of that scenario happening but it is actually intractable to try and compute. Like if I join these two data sets, then it becomes a higher classification. Like yeah. you don't know until some human in an authoritative position says, oh, that is actually really bad information for the wrong person to get a hold of. Yeah. So like there's a, that, that part of it, I, I don't think is very well understood, like just in the world in general that we can't predict what could be damaging information to someone. So, yeah. Well, yeah. also, also when you like, it, it's funny how you said it's really bad information to have for someone with bad intentions. Well, it's also very good information for someone with good intentions to have. So there's always the flip side of that, right? Like yep. understanding your data better and exposing all the analytics, which is what Trino thrives on, isn't inherently good or bad. It just depends on the actor that then yeah they do with the data and that's also something where trina is very uh like diligent about it what we very much focus on is that the data is correct like mm -hmm. we the queries run correctly produce mm -hmm. the correct results and stuff like that and in fact there was a very funny into uh, like at the trina meetup earlier this week there was a funny incident that um Martin and you were talking about Brian <laughs> yeah. Facebook where um, queries were running very fast in another system, but they produced the correct, the wrong results, right? Like they just like tossed away data. So go listen to that once it goes live on the on the Trino website. That's yeah, it, it's it, and it was actually information that was being used by Mark uh, uh, Zuckerberg 
at Facebook. So he was like actually using this system and it was giving him wrong data. <laughs> so, anyways, it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, we make sure that data is correct that you get from Trino so you're in good hands. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, anything else before we kind of, you know, we'll, we'll start wrapping up the, the concept of the week. Uh, thank you like so much for giving us the, the kind of, you know, peek behind the curtain of what it's like to actually be, you know, dealing with these, these types of issues. I, I mean, I, I've always wondered if Trino is in any of these kind of secret and, and top clearance environments. And I'm, I'm super stoked to think that, you know, it's, it's being used there. This is actually kind of a full circle moment for me, to be honest, uh, <laughs> since I, you know, started my whole journey in the military and learning about databases through that uh, and being really excited from there. And then now uh, seeing that this, this you know, uh, system that I'm really excited about is is helping out military and, and uh, Department of Defense personnel. It's just, it's really exciting stuff because it's, it's super important work uh, that you all are doing in RAP. So um, anything else you all want to kind of uh, close off on uh or or kind of say before we we hop on to the next segment of the show i i don't have anything else but yeah appreciate the offer get on our soapboxes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally uh well well thanks so much uh you know we'll definitely uh send me the the uh kind of careers page for raft uh, we're gonna send in a couple of raft kind of links to the bottom of the show notes here um and uh we'll we'll uh we'll kind of cue you in on you know it's a it's a definitely uh you would call yourselves a trino shop right if anybody who's uh, in the trino community wants to work for you, you you're looking for people who know trino right yeah 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 definitely. probably probably also a whole bunch of other things on the open source ecosystem Kubernetes, yeah ncf and trino and all that good stuff yeah so if you know if, if this is something interesting to you, possibly you might need a, a uh, security clearance. And uh, but if you know Trino and Kubernetes, uh, you know and and like stands automatically. <laughs> yeah, you're you basically just pop right in, <laughs> and you'll be yeah, no raft.tech is the address. So. Definitely. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's go to the pull request of the episode. All right, Brian. Show us what got merged and is cool. Yes. So, um, so I wanted to pull up, uh, and I didn't I should have pulled this up beforehand, but, uh, there we go. Uh, so we, uh, this was one of the ones that came in on uh, 392. Uh, and I just thought it was a, it's a simple, you know, concept. It's easy to talk about. Um, uh, but I wanted to just, you know, shout out to, uh, you know, one of our community members, uh, Preeth, Preeth, uh, Preethir, Oh my God. I didn't remember where it actually is. Split. Uh, it's Preeth, uh, Preeth Ratnam. Um, so thanks, Preeti, for uh, for submitting this. This is actually um, a, a very good uh, PR in terms of the fact that, like, when you're running uh, selects on on JSON files, uh, sometimes those JSON files have quite a bit of uh, fields in them, and so uh, so it's it's better that we would actually not have to, you know. Uh, when, when we're already running on JSON files, it's already slow enough with serialization, deserialization. So uh, what this pull request actually adds is that if you're doing, you know, maybe a, a select amount of uh, um, uh, uh, columns, you know, on, on that JSON file, um, you're actually going to be pushing that down now to uh, the Hive connector and um, it's not it's not basically going to be sending back these large giant JSON files to send across the wire um, uh, versus like before you were potentially having quite a bit of, uh, of these things. So you could currently only push do the push down uh, select push down for um, uh, for top level JSON files. So if you do have like one column that has a whole bunch of nested uh, you know fields in it then then 
you know, we can't clear those out, but that is going to be a future optimization that they're also going to be looking into to adding as well. Uh, they mentioned in this in this PR. So, uh, anyways, thanks, uh, uh, Pratir and uh, Prati, and uh, thanks for uh, to Andre for for doing the review here. Um, I, I don't, I'm not going to be doing this one in particular in in the demo today, uh, but uh, I think you know it's pretty. I think just explaining it out, out loud in words uh, hopefully did it justice enough. Uh, so. Um, anyways, thanks again for both of you. And uh, this is going to be a, fit, a quick last part of the thing. We're going on to the demo of the episode. All right. So this uh, episode, this month's um, demo of the episode, I actually got a, a, uh, um, a Great Expectations demo already uh, pulled together that I did for a, um, a meetup that I did. Uh, so I am also doing a little bit of a cop out for this month's demo because I already wrote, wrote this one. Um, and I figured uh, I'll just embed this one in the show notes uh, and just kind of go over what the demo is, is about. So Great Expectations is a, uh, is a data quality library that is uh, expressed in Python. And it basically allows you to, uh, at different points in your data lake or any kind of like ETL process or data pipelines that you're running, um, it allows you to basically run validations on your data. So uh, let's say you have, uh, you know, multiple phases, you know, you kind of have your data that comes in in kind of a landing format. Um, you, your first step is usually you have it in some sort of raw format, maybe JSON or CSV, and you need to, you know, clean it up, put it into a, a, a more uh, queryable format, let's say like the ORC or, you know, columnar type formats uh, or Parquet. And then, you know, once you have it in that, you want to make, basically make a consumable table that is going to get used by your kind of data analyst. So you kind of have like three phases there. In reality, these end up being, you know, probably five to seven phases or maybe even more, uh, just depending on your on your workload. But, you know, simple enough, think about it as three. Each time you create a new kind of data set out of this uh, or, or make a new step to your pipeline uh, is a potential that there's, there's going to be some uh, misrepresentation on the schema, things get updated, you're going to change things, as, uh, add columns and things like that. You want to essentially always have a data validation that essentially ensure that you're, you're where you are intending to be, you know, essentially you didn't have, didn't add something or remove something unintentionally. And uh, Great Expectations is a data quality tool to kind of check, you know, and I just said adding and deleting columns, but there are so many other things it checks kind of uh, validates maybe a batch size that you're running. Uh, so it can check how many rows just came out of a particular run, um, all sorts of things. And so uh, and, and so you express these things uh, in these uh, kind of validations called expectations. And so they have a huge library of expectations. It actually gives me a lot of like great insight in terms of like how I can actually, what, what expectations or what validations I should be running on my data just by going through there and, and checking it out. So what this uh, demo is actually going to do is it's going to run you through uh, pulling up some Pokemon data. Uh, there's actually two Pokemon uh, uh, files. One's a, a CSV that has kind of the uh, you know dimensional Pokemon data that is like uh, what their uh, hit points are, uh, the type of Pokemon they are, and this kind of thing. And you'll have another table that's going to be uh, coming from Pokemon Go, the very popular Pokemon Go data set, which has uh, lat longs of the spawn locations of those Pokemon. And so uh, these are two tables that you bring in raw, and you're going to be transforming them, like I just said. And after you get done transforming them, uh, you, you essentially want to, at each point, run these great expectations validations. 
And this is just going to be, a, it's a fun little demo, uh, you know, for the, especially for those of you millennials like me that, uh, or, or Gen Zers maybe that are, are super into Pokemon. Uh, always fun to just uh, play around with uh, nostalgic stuff. So uh, nostalgic data sets. So, um, so that's kind of uh, the overview. Uh, you can go to this uh, repository I created. It's all uh, contained in there, the data and everything, Entrino-DataLake. And then you just run, it's in a Docker Compose format. You pull that up and then you just go through the steps uh, that I, I put in this Markdown tutorial, or you can follow the video uh, that I have in the show notes. So without further ado, uh, we'll go on to the last part of the show, which Before is the- we jump there, oh, well, I want to oh, just oh. quickly ask okay. Steve and uh, Edward, if they see any use cases for great expectations or tools- Oh like yeah, good, good are, question. Like, like, do you use things like, like you were talking Python before with Jupyter and Apache. Do you use things like DBT or Great I think Great Expectations is also Python-based, isn't it? Yep, it is. I haven't had too much experience with it. Steve, what about you? Uh, I actually did a demo for Raft's Data Guild last month on Great Expectations. Uh, I definitely think that there is a use case for it. Um, data quality is like just in general, a pretty significant concern as it relates to organizations as they start to roll out their data strategy. Yep. And like this is a very tangible and simple way to start implementing data quality standards on a data set. Like I've seen some pretty kludgy solutions and like this is very straightforward. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really did enjoy the process for sure. And what, what did you think of Great Expectations, Steve? Um, it, it was really straightforward like it started with. I mean, my my demo might have been even more like superficial than yours. Like I basically just followed their quick start. Yeah, but that went like very smoothly. Yeah, it's also. it's a great concept, and it's it's actually very simple uh, to to use. So yeah, we're we're hoping to ramp up more uh, more demos and kind of uh, more community events around it because yeah, people are asking us a lot of this in the in the Trino community as well. So glad to hear you all are using it, and uh, let me know if you if you have any. Uh, you know, questions or you want to, I, I mean, I'm, are you already in touch with the great expectations folks or just still kind of proofing it out? Yeah. Just experimenting at this point. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's go to the question of the episode. And this is also a very simple one. Uh, I, I don't even know why I'm not even showing my screen anymore because this is a, uh, very, very straightforward answer, but we've, we've actually seen this pop up twice uh, now as people have started moving to Kubernetes um, and trying to kind of understand it. There's, I know there's a, a huge portion of the data people that I, I think, you know, maybe they were hopped on a little bit on Docker, but they didn't weren't really up to date on Kubernetes. And so there's still people kind of coming and asking us these questions as we uh, have really more fully featured the, the Helm chart. And so somebody asks, uh, kind of, I, I'm not able to use Helm uh, anymore at my company or, or at my company due to some various restrictions. Uh, so I guess they can't run the specific like Helm commands that we had showed in previous Trino community broadcasts. So, um, so one thing you know that's good to know about Helm is that uh, you can actually just generate all of the configuration files just by using this uh, Helm template command. And I actually do that. I think this person only saw the first. Uh, Trinity's episode that I, I created around uh, Trino on Kubernetes. And so uh, this the way that you could do this is essentially locally, you would install Helm on your system, run the Helm template command, and actually you can generate, or you, this could even be an automated part of your process in your you know uh, CI. And so you could basically just have Helm run that 
YAML command and then version those docs uh, based on the latest, you know, Helm config that you got from us and the new values that you you set in there. And so all you really need to do is know that Helm template command. I have that in the show notes. And essentially, uh, we, we also have it in a, a tr the second Trinity's episode where we actually generate and go debug and dive into. My favorite thing to do is debug YAML <laughs> um, and just look at it so uh, uh, and make sure that everything looks correct. Uh, but Helm is, a, is, a, is actually a nice way to avoid you from having to you know, futz around with too much YAML yourself. They just generate it and you just have to really uh, have the correct templates uh, out there. And then once Helm, you know, generates those, you could then version those those YAML files. And then in terms of your regular system, you don't have to use Helm and have it installed anywhere other than, you know, your local system and or maybe a, a CI uh, setup to, to kind of, you know, maybe uh, any change that you do to the Helm file or the version, the values file, uh, maybe you want to scale up your, uh, your default settings for the, you know, number of worker nodes or something like that. You know, you can actually version that, uh, once you run the Helm template command. So, so that's pretty much it. So, uh, so that is really also, the show. also to clarify for, for people that, um, don't even have that opportunity, um, all Helm really is, is a templating system to create the Kubernetes resource definitions. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to use Helm because you like routing a, or you have another method of creating those, those Kubernetes resource files, then just go do that. Yeah. Like you don't need to use Helm. It's just more convenient yeah. um, and less error prone, arguably. Well, and I think like the concern was they wanted to follow the standard that we set out in the community. But they didn't want they they weren't allowed I guess to set up like uh, have Helm be like the standard way that they version things and run things and things like that they can't just use a values YAML but I'm just like well you know as long as you can get clearance to just put it on a CI CD and then you version the the values YAML and you run that you know as part of your CI CD process and just automatically you know version that then it's like you don't have to have Helm be the the way that you do that you can kind of be the step in between so. Yeah. Cool. Uh, anything else before before we uh, hop off? Yes. Again, I have to play questionnaire. Steve and Edward, what Helm chart or stuff are you using for your Kubernetes stuff with Juno? What Helm chart? Yeah, are you using the we're all we're, we're fully using the Trino Helm charts officially. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No all problem. right. What's your experience been so far, actually? Because we we are still trying to improve it. But has there any anything missing that you've all really needed or? Not that I can think of. It's super easy to add new catalogs if you need that. I know we've yeah. done that a couple of times. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anything glaring that's been missing from it. Nice. Wait. Scaling up, scaling down is all working the horizontal. Did we have the horizontal autoscaler that we use? Is that what you all are using? Or? I'd have to actually look and see. Um, okay. I don't know if we've tried to change those yet. Okay. Okay, I think yeah, that is a lot of scaling one. is done manually or by some external system. Okay, I wasn't sure where our straight was at that. I know we've been incrementing a lot of like new features into the Helm chart now, and so it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh, with that, uh, oh, one more thing actually, I will say is uh, Trino Summit is uh, going to be coming up in November. Uh, it is going to be a hybrid event, and uh, it's going to be November 10th, uh, and so you can now uh, sign up for that. We are, um, we have, uh, I will put that link in the show notes as well, um, and definitely uh, come join us uh, if you are, you know, uh, able to. We, we are, we are still at this point a hybrid event, 
uh, planning on, on doing, you know, at least, um, you know, 250 or so people uh, to be in person uh, is kind of our max uh, stat for the location that we're doing. We're trying to keep people somewhat spaced out still. And uh, otherwise, we will have a virtual component to that if you are not comfortable yet doing traveling and things. And uh, it'll be uh, around, it's November 10th, and uh, we'll be yeah, just doing a whole day of really cool, incredible talks. Uh, you know, if you uh, folks here at RAP want to sign up for that, we, we are doing call for speakers now until September 15th. And then otherwise, if you're just wanting to attend, uh, you know, that you can uh, show up virtually anytime, but the, there is limited space in terms of uh, in-person. So try to uh, jump on that as quickly as you can if you do want to show up uh, uh, live. Yeah, and in both cases, please register. Also, if anyone is interested to sponsor as well, we always yes. are also interested to have sponsors. And when you say in-person, it is in the Commonwealth Club west of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. So Correct. beautiful views and... Yep. Come to California. <laughs> we'll all be out there. Great. All right. Well, take care and see you all. Happy querying. Music for the show is from the Mega Man 6 gameplay album by Shishtaf Swabikowski. Don't forget to give us a star on the Trino repository at github.com forward slash TrinoDB forward slash Trino. And for more information on future shows and to find show notes, check out trino.io forward slash broadcast.